Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Advances in the Treatment of Gastric Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. I really want to thank them for their collaboration and helping to spread the word about the program. Um, and we have on the program today over um, 207 participants. You come from all of the United States. And we also have international participants from uh, Chile, uh, Canada, uh, Russia, and the United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well. And um, today's program is supported by a grant from Genentech and the Diana Apley Fund. And we thank them for their support of the program. And we have just the very best speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Koo. Dr. Koo is medical oncologist, head of the esophagogastric section, gastrointestinal oncology service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Koo will be addressing an overview of gastric cancer, including diagnosis and staging, current standard of care, including chemotherapy in the context of COVID-19, new and emerging treatment approaches and the role of targeted treatments, and precision medicine, predicting response to treatment. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Koo. Carolyn, thanks very much. And, you know, I, I've done this for a couple of years now, and it's genuinely always a, always a pleasure to, to participate in this and, and to hopefully, you know, offer some useful information. Um, having said that, I mean, we truly are living in unprecedented times uh, here in the U.S., but really around the world. Um, I mean, I think a, a headline in the New York Times, I think one or two weeks ago, was that at this point half the world is under some form of quarantine, which is truly you know, unprecedented in, in, in human history. Uh, so certainly, you know, what I'll try and do today is talk a little bit about stomach cancer, but also I think focus on um, how we are necessarily modifying treatments in, in the era of COVID-19. And as we talked about a little bit, you know, before the call, I think this is likely going to be an ongoing issue until there is a successful deployment globally of a vaccine. But in any case, coming back to, to the topic at hand, um, um, so stomach cancer itself is, you know, a disease that is uh, variably uh, found in different places in the world. So here in the U.S., it's relatively uncommon. Uh, but globally, stomach cancer, um, which is also lumped together with esophageal cancer, is actually one of the most common cancers and, and, and rivals the incidence of lung cancer or breast cancer. Um, the staging of stomach cancer really depends on, on uh, the symptoms, uh, but certainly most people will end up starting with an endoscopy uh, that diagnoses the cancer. Um, the symptoms that you know, a patients may have in the beginning can be nonspecific. It can be some nausea symptoms or some discomfort with food. Uh, frequently these symptoms can mimic that of acid reflux or an ulcer. Uh, these symptoms can be mild. Uh, and and it can, it's not uncommon for the symptoms to last for a couple of months. Um, before we ultimately make the diagnosis, again, most typically with an endoscopy. 
Uh, once the endoscopy is done, we would then um, obtain some kind of imaging, and typically that would be a CAT scan or potentially a PET scan. And the treatments really then depend on uh, whether there's evidence that the cancer cells have spread elsewhere or uh, whether the cancer appears to be confined. Um, talking first about what we call a localized or locally advanced cancer, uh, there's no evidence that the cancer has spread. Um, we sometimes uh, consider what's called an endoscopic ultrasound, and that's an endoscopy with an ultrasound probe, and that gives us more information about the size of the tumor in the stomach, as well as whether any lymph nodes are involved. Uh, another test that we uh, strongly consider is a laparoscopy, and that's a procedure where one of my uh, surgical colleagues makes tiny incisions in the abdomen, uh, and they look around to, to make sure that the cancer cells have not spread to the lining of the abdomen. Uh, we typically also flush out uh, the abdomen with some saline, with some salt water, and look at it under the microscope to make sure that we don't see cancer cells floating around. So after all of this workup, um, is we ultimately decide um, there are probably three stages that, that a stomach cancer can fall into. Uh, if it's very early stage, meaning that the tumor is very small, uh, sometimes the only treatment that's required is actually surgery to remove uh, that part of the stomach. In general, in the U.S., it's relatively uncommon to find uh, early stage tumors, uh, but actually in parts of East Asia, specifically Korea and Japan, where stomach cancer is extremely common and where they actually screen for it, much as we screen for things like um, breast cancer, cervical cancer, and, and colon cancer, uh, frequently the cancer is detected in an early stage and, and, and patients have surgery and, and don't require any additional treatment and have a high chance of being cured. Uh, the next stage would be a middle stage. If we thought the tumor was relatively big, if we thought some of the lymph nodes next to the tumor were involved, uh, the typical treatment would be some combination of surgery and chemotherapy. Um, in the U.S. and Western Europe, we typically uh, would choose to give chemotherapy before and maybe after surgery. On the other hand, in East Asia, they typically operate first and then give chemotherapy after that. Um, the third category is late stage, because we find that the cancer cells have spread away from the stomach itself. For example, if it's gone to the liver, if it's gone to the lining of the abdomen, if it's gone to lymph nodes that are far away from the stomach, then the main treatment is normally some form of, of chemotherapy. So with regards to, to um, kind of the chemotherapy treatments uh, for kind of late-stage cancer or cancer that spreads, um, I'll go into it briefly, but I can certainly take questions later on. Um, the main treatment still remains uh, some form of chemotherapy, and normally we give combinations of two chemotherapy drugs. Um, in terms of newer treatments or targeted treatments, uh, the only targeted treatment that's approved in combination with chemotherapy uh, as the first treatment option or what we call first-line treatment uh, is a medication called Shastizumab or Herceptin, and this is an antibody that blocks the HER2 protein, which is found in about 20 to 25% of, of stomach cancer cells. Um, beyond that, uh, there's always a significant interest in looking at immunotherapy, and these are medications that stimulate the immune system, so the immune system recognizes and attacks the cancer cells. Um, for about three years now in the U.S., an immunotherapy medication called pembrolizumab has been approved as third-line treatment, in other words, as the third uh, treatment option. Um, so it's approved if two other chemotherapy combinations have not worked, and it's approved for about 60% of patients 
provided that the tumor cells have a protein called PDL1. Um, more recent studies have looked at giving immunotherapy in the second line situation and even in the first line situation on its own or combined with chemotherapy. In general, these studies really have not shown that moving up immunotherapy to earlier lines is, is better. Uh, the only exception is for a very rare subgroup of stomach cancer uh, that's called microsatellite unstable stomach cancer. Uh, microsatellite unstable uh, cancers occur about 3 to 4% of the time. And, and in, in that case, there clearly is a role to use immunotherapy as the second-line treatment and potentially even as the first-line treatment uh, since microsatellite unstable tumors respond very, very well to immunotherapy. Um, the um, kind of related to the use of immunotherapy and the, the use of uh, trastuzumab or Herceptin is this idea of precision medicine. It's the idea that we can test the tumor cells and based on the tumor characteristics, come up with personalized treatments for each individual patient. Unfortunately, I think that that still remains a little bit in the realm of science fiction. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have tailored treatments for everyone and anyone, although there are a couple of regular tests that we, that we use that can help to guide treatment. So I'd already mentioned that uh, the one drug that's approved in combination with chemotherapy uh, is trastuzumab or herceptin, and again, this is an antibody or a protein that blocks the HER2 protein found on stomach cancer cells. So certainly one routine test would be to test the cancer cells for HER2, and in the 20 to 25% uh, of the time when it's present, we would add the trastuzumab to chemotherapy. Uh, the second kind of test, the biomarker that I had also alluded to, uh, is to test uh, to see whether the cancer cells uh, microsatellite unstable. Again, this comprises only about three to three to four percent of stomach cancers. Uh, but when we identify these tumors, it's, it's, it's absolutely important to consider immunotherapy early on because the immunotherapy can be potentially very very effective and uh, may potentially even have the ability to cure the stomach cancer itself. Uh, the last uh, biomarker or test that I've also briefly mentioned. And that's PDL1. So PDL1 is a protein that's also present on stomach cancer cells. Uh, it's present typically about 60% of the time, and when it's present, uh, it um, means that the cancer cells are more likely to respond to immunotherapy. So really, you know, the current standard of care requires that we test for these three things: HER2, microsatellite unstable status, as well as PDL1. And then on the basis of these three tests that allows us to consider uh, immunotherapy and, 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 and trastuzumab uh, and kind of the latest treatments. Um, there are many people who've heard about the idea of doing genetic testing um, as well as the cancer cell, something called, um, it's variably called uh, mixed generation sequencing. Uh, but the idea behind that is that there are commercial companies and there are also uh, academic institutions such as ours uh, which test uh, anywhere from four to 600 genes within the cancer cells to try to identify weaknesses or kind of dependencies that we can target. Um, it, it is considered standard of care in the U.S. now uh, to perform mixed-generation sequencing and something that insurance pays for. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, despite the fact that we're testing four or five hundred genes, it's rare for us to identify a specific weakness that we can actually target um, beyond the three that I talked about, or two, um, um, microsatellite unstable and, and PDL1 status. Uh, but still, mixed-generation sequencing, certainly from a research perspective, 
remains a very important tool for us. Um, in the last couple of minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to, I'll, I'll focus on, on what I led off with, which is the COVID situation. So, you know, here in New York, as it turned out, uh, we're really kind of the global epicenter for the problem at this time. And certainly, uh, I think in all hospitals in the region, it's completely transformed the way that we think about cancer care. Um, so specifically, in many situations, uh, we're actually trying to delay surgery as much as possible. And that's really because, you know, if someone were to be in the hospital, they're covering up the surgery, they, there would be a higher chance that they could catch the COVID virus. Um, if they were to catch the virus, potentially they could get very, very sick from it. Um, certainly at Memorial, and I know elsewhere, many, many surgeries actually are on hold. Uh, for example, we've actually converted many of our operating rooms into ICUs uh, in the event that we need them. Um, hopefully, as the situation improves, you know, the, the ORs will open back up and we will be able to do more surgeries. But for now, uh, we're trying to push off surgeries. Uh, in fact, we're trying to push off just about everything. So even with chemotherapy, um, there, there is potentially an oral chemotherapy choice. So for some patients, we're switching them from intravenous chemotherapy to oral chemotherapy so that they can receive the treatment safely at home without having to come to an infusion center and potentially be exposed to the virus. Um, we're delaying treatment, so uh, you know, some combinations are given every two weeks in patients who are doing well. Uh, we're doing it every three weeks, so potentially even giving them a month off uh, so that they don't have to come in for treatment. And, and the other situation where we've modified treatment uh, is, for example, um, for someone who's had surgery and maybe they're getting chemotherapy in the preventative setting to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back, where before we would give, you know, something like four to six months of chemotherapy, we now may be shortening it to three to four months with a recognition that um, the incremental benefit of one or two months at the end is less. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, there is, there is extensive testing within the hospital. Um, uh, at Memorial, we have the ability to test for COVID um, ourselves. For anyone who comes to our, uh, our urgent care center will be tested. Anyone who needs a CAT scan or a procedure will be tested 48 hours before that procedure. If someone comes for chemotherapy and they have a fever, we test them, but we send them home immediately until the results come back. So, so you know, it really has transformed how we are thinking about treatment. Uh, the last thing I would say is, you know, we're relying now a lot more on telemedicine. So we either do consults on the phone or, or by video. Uh, and, and I think, you know, long-standing assumptions we've had about the way that we deliver care are being, are being uh, a challenge and are being changed. And I mean, the, the one good thing I would say is that some of these assumptions and changes are, are probably for the better. I mean, things that, you know, we've, we've done for a long time, you know, we're beginning to re-examine whether there's a better way to do them. And hopefully one thing that will emerge from this is that, you know, many more people will make use of telemedicine consults, which clearly are convenient to patients. Uh, many of our patients, you know, travel, you know, anywhere from one to two hours to get into the city. So trying to avoid that uh, may ultimately have, have long-term benefits. Um, you know, the situation is clearly evolving. And, and I think, you know, in many places in the world, it's peaking. Um, we were just saying, you know, earlier on before this call, how each city, how each country reopens and tries to get back to business as usual will be different. Uh, it's also clear that business as usual will not be business as usual as it was before. 
Uh, I think a lot of, um, I think in our lives will be significantly changed until such time that there is a vaccine, and that's going to be for the next 12 to 18 months. So for many people who are you know, starting treatment or many people who are on treatment, uh, this really will have, um, you know, dramatic changes in how we approach that care, um, and 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 um, it's something that continues to evolve, you know, almost on a week-to-week basis. Uh, but certainly, you know, a, a an important component of it is that, you know, where we can avoid or delay uh, procedures or treatments, we've absolutely been doing that. Uh, we're changing the sequence of chemotherapy and surgery. Um, so this is a rapidly evolving situation. Uh, but I but I think it will have kind of long-term repercussions, some of which, like I said, may be good in terms of our using telemedicine services uh, more than we have before in the past. So I think that takes me to about 15 minutes, and, and I'll stop there. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Koo. That was really outstanding, very outstanding. And I have to say also, um, you know, your discussion about the reality that we have now, but then also about how it may impact um, care and, and could actually be, bring some changes to care that might actually help patients who have to travel long distances for their care. So thank you very much for that insight. And um, um, so thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, absolutely. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Mohamed Bassam Sanbal. Dr. Sanbal is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, Senior Associate Consultant, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Gastrointestinal Cancer Program, Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, Arizona. And Dr. Sunball is going to be addressing clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment options, controlling symptoms, side effects, and pain, the importance of communicating with your healthcare team about supportive care and quality of life concerns. But now it gives me great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sunball. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesmer, and thank you, everyone. It's definitely a pleasure to participate again in this event. Um, now, as you heard from Dr. Ku, the standard of care for treatment of advanced disease or metastatic in gastric cancer is really with a combination of chemotherapy. In some patients, also, we add what we call uh, target therapy, and you heard about that uh, with trastuzumab in patients who have the HER2 target. And in a subset of patients also, we use immunotherapy as another option as well. Now, as you know, the ultimate goal for developing all of these uh, new drugs and all of the drugs in the future is really to achieve cure for this cancer and other cancers in the future. Everything that has been discussed today with the medications that you heard about, whether it's target therapy or, or chemotherapy, have been really achieved as part of clinical trials. I would like to first go over an overview of the different uh, steps in clinical trial development or what we call phases, and then we'd like to highlight some of the important updates in the last few years, and then we can talk about symptoms control and importance of communication. Now, in drug development, research first comes in uh, initially from the lab asking the question. Uh, usually, the research weapon has scientific background, initially testing uh, new drugs on test tubes and animals. And then when we, when we see that there is a promise of, of the drug, then we take that drug to what we call a phase one study. So the goal of the phase one study is really to assess whether this new drug first is, is safe in human, and if it is safe, what is the, the safest dose that we can utilize in humans? And also in addition to that, we look at signals of efficacy 
which means the effectiveness of the drug and whether uh, there is, for example, a shrinking of the cancer on the drug or not. Then if, if we see that promise and this is achieved in a phase one study, then we take it to what we call a phase two study, which is really we're expanding on the phase one and assessing the effectiveness of the drug in a larger group of patients who have that disease. And this, in this circumstances, it's the gastric cancer. So you take a group of patients with gastric cancer and you give them the new drug. Um, and you look if there is any shrinking of the cancer on this drug or not, and again, what are the side effects. And if there is a promise, then we take the drug to the big test, which is what we call a phase three trial. So the phase three trial is comparing the new drug uh, compared to the standard of care. So we want to know if this drug is better than the standard of care. In most circumstances, there are two groups of patients. One group would get the standard of care, and then the other group would get the new drug. And then we look at whether the patients who got the new drug have more cancer shrinkage, and whether they live longer, for example, or in attempt to, to in, in a kind of a way to attempt to change the, the standard of care um, in, in these patients with with adding a new drug, which which might be associated with better outcomes. Now, each one of the, the drugs discussed here today, we went through this process, and we got here because of patients who participated in trials and studies, and we got really here because of altruism of those patients. Now, although we hope that every clinical trial we start uh, end up being positive, however, many of these clinical trials end up uh, being what we call negative, which means that the drug is not so effective or has too many side effects. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing. We really learn from the new information, uh, whether it's really from the negative or the positive. We learn to optimize future treatments. We learn how to develop better drugs. Um, and even how to tackle the disease differently from a, a different angle. So research is definitely a key, and it is important as it leads to progress and, and hopefully cure in the future even for the advanced disease uh, in one day. Um, as example of trials uh, that were reported recently and have promised in improving outcomes uh, in, in patients with gastric cancer, um, a, a trial that was looking at actually uh, at a drug uh, targeting the HER2, you heard that about 15-20% of patients with gastric cancer have changes with, with, within the cancer uh, with the protein called HER2. And these changes represent a target on the cancer cells that we can really hit using that drug that is specific to, to, to the target such as trastuzumab, which you heard about. We have been using trastuzumab for the, about the last two decades now, in general, in, in breast cancer and then later on in gastric cancer over the last decade. Now, usually we add trastuzumab to chemotherapy in those patients who have the HER2 protein. Um, however, when trastuzumab stops working after a while, the options in targeting the HER2 are really limited. Therefore, there has been multiple attempts to develop drugs that could work in such patients. Now, recently there was a drug, for example, that has been developed using novel mechanisms to target the HER2. It took the trastuzumab that is targeting the HER2 and added or hooked up a small dose of chemotherapy to it so that when you give this drug, it goes directly to cancer cells in the body that has that target and then unleash the chemo into the cells to fill these cells. Now, this drug is, is, is called trastuzumab deroxycan, and this, this drug has been, uh, has been tested in a phase three study, meaning compared to standard of care, but that was in a breast, in, in breast cancer, not in gastric cancer. It was tested in, in gastric cancer in a phase one study, 
Um, it was a kind of a small uh, study in, in gastric cancer and showed really a promising um, activity with acceptable uh, safety profiles, acceptable side effects. Um, and, and patients who actually received trastuzumab before and now they're getting the new drug. Uh, now, this drug is not fully ready uh, to be used in the clinic because, as I mentioned, it's still in the phase one in gastric uh, cancers, but there is a phase three study that's uh, um, ongoing in some of the centers in the U.S. that is uh, currently asking that question whether this drug would be uh, something that we can use in the future. Now, uh, similarly to the, to the HER2 changes, there's a subset of patients you heard with gastric cancer who have changes in their cancer cells, making the tumor more recognizable by the immune system. And those changes, uh, as you heard from Dr. Hu, they're called um, MSI, or microcellulite instability. In such patients, immunotherapy works very well and outperforms chemotherapy. And this was confirmed uh, recently in a report in different studies confirming that we know uh, what we know that every single patient with gastric cancer should really be tested uh, for this MSI status. Now, there are multiple other trials that are ongoing and, and testing drugs that are trying to manipulate the tumor or the immune system to recognize the tumor in addition to, to really developing other targets, uh, other, uh, other, uh, um, other drugs that hit different targets. Now, as you can see, clinical trials can be used as a tool for testing the safety and effectiveness of, of novel drugs, but also can be used to help uh, uh, optimize the delivery of care. For example, um, in patients who are older or frail, we know that side effects are more likely to happen. Now, in multiple circumstances, we give some of these drugs, uh, like chemotherapy and others, at full dose, and then decrease the dose if side effects happen. However, in such patients, uh, one question we have is, I mean, is, is there really a benefit of giving the full dose? Can we maybe give 80% or 60% of the dose and achieve the, the same effectiveness but with less side effects? Now, this was actually tested in a phase three study reported in, in the UK. They asked the exact same question in patients with gastric cancer, where a group of patients got 100% of the dose, another group got 80% of the dose, and then the third group got 60% of the dose. And that was, again, in, in frail patients with gastric cancer. Interestingly, the group who got 60% of the dose, so got lower dose, lived as much as those patients who got 100% of the dose, but with less side effects and, and better quality of life. So as, as you can see, I mean, with clinical trial, we learn about uh, the, the new drugs uh, that, that are coming on to to. Uh, to add what we, uh, on, on what we have, but also optimize how we give the drugs that we already have. Now, of course, part of taking care of our patients and one of the key elements in controlling the disease is really to control symptoms and making uh, sure that patients uh, are able to tolerate uh, treatments with controlling the symptoms that can arise from uh, the, the, the disease itself or even the side effects of the therapy. Now, a lot of times you, you will hear um, from your doctors or, or, or even the team saying at the, the initial visit that you will probably feel better after starting chemotherapy. And that is, although it sounds strange at the beginning, but it's actually true in many uh, of the circumstances because many of the symptoms that patients are having initially uh, are really driven by the tumor itself. So when you treat the, 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 the disease itself, which is the cancer itself, a lot of times those patients uh, start feeling better and, and the quality of life get, get, get improved and get better. 
for example, because of the location of the gastric tumor as the port of entry to the digestive tract, um, obstruction can happen, so depending on the size, uh, the size of the tumor. Uh, this can lead to to problem with passing food or leading to nausea or vomiting or even weight loss. Now, thankfully, we have multiple options to treat this, uh, like stents or even in some circumstances, uh, feeding tube to, to feeding tube to allow to deliver uh, uh, food or nutrients to to relieve obstruction. Also, the, the nausea medications have uh, significantly gotten better in the last uh, two decades. So the advancement that we have is not just from the they, they how to give chemo and how to give new drugs, but also in, in the supportive care medications as well. Now, bleeding can also happen just because of the location of the tumor itself, and that can uh, uh, be treated with, with the help of gastroenterology colleagues uh, with endoscopic procedures, with sometimes cauterization or, or even surgery very rarely. Now, um, you will hear more about nutrition, and the, the, the nutritionist role is really vital uh, in, in maximizing nutrition to, to continue building strength and, and, and muscle, and we'll hear more about that today, as, as I said. Um, uh, pain also is another uh, thing that we, uh, we, kinda, uh, we have to be very careful about, and we work closely with our uh, palliative care uh, colleagues, uh, or I'd like to call them sometimes supportive care uh, doctors and nurses to, to really control nausea, pain, and other symptoms. So a lot of these symptoms uh, arise are as a result of the cancer itself, and treating the cancer can alleviate most of these symptoms. However, uh, also chemotherapy or even immunotherapy can cause uh, the side effects of uh, nausea, neuropathy, uh, which varies from tingling sensation in the fingers or toes, um, or, or other uh, motor functions. Uh, so it's really a balance that you and your doctor have to work together to achieve uh, to maximize the benefits and, and minimize the side effects. Now, as you can see, all, all of these elements require very good communication between you and your healthcare uh, team to achieve the best results possible, as the care now requires uh, multidisciplinary uh, care uh, team with, with different specialties. So communication is a key. It's very important between uh, the team's um, members on one end and, and, and then also between the patient and the team members on the other end. I always tell the patients that, remember, if your doctor do not hear from you or get any message from you, they assume that everything really is going well. Therefore, it's important that if you have any issues or concerns, to let your, uh, your team, uh, doctors or nurses, to, to know what's going on. So as I mentioned, the neuro-oncologist might consult with other team members to further support you, uh, such as palliative care, pain medicine, social worker, nutritionist. All of these consults and, and communications are really triggered by uh, your communication between you and your, your uh, health, uh, health team uh, regarding any symptoms or concerns. Uh, with that, I conclude my part of this presentation, and thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Zongal. That was extraordinary and wonderful, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and um, thank you for addressing so many of the issues that people are struggling with, so thank you. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Uh, Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian the Michael E. DeBake EVA Medical Center, and she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's really my great pleasure to this program, of which my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. 
Thank you, Caroline. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutrition concerns in the presence of gastric cancer. Um, nutrition and hydration are absolutely essential in um, supporting bodily functions, your quality of life. Um, and so as you go through treatment for gastric cancer, you may be starting off um, with struggles already and struggles with eating, tolerating your diet, just like has been mentioned, like Dr. Q discussed, some of the side effects that patients experience um, that bring them in for further workouts. So throughout your treatment, your diet may be modified just to um, help work with you based on the side effects you're experiencing. Um, other side effects can be things like a decrease in appetite, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, um, dehydration. So a dietitian is there to um, provide you individual um, counseling on your needs, specifically information on calorie, protein, and fluid needs, and on diet modifications. Um, at times your diet can be modified. That could be a texture modification. It may be eliminating um, some foods, bringing in others, just depending on what your challenges are at that stage. Um, and to remember that your needs change um, throughout your treatment. So based on your plan of care and your treatment plan, you may be experiencing different things along the way, and so um, your plan can change. The important thing is, is that you're communicating with your healthcare team. Um, don't ever feel like, um, you know, they already know something or um, that this is normal, they haven't mentioned anything to me. Um, each person experiences side effects in their own way and to their own extent. Not everybody has the same um, journey. And that brings into the picture you communicating to us. If we don't ask you something or bring something up and there's a change, please speak up and communicate to us because we're here to support you and help you through this. Um, there are many members to the healthcare team, and each member has their role. So um, it's okay to repeat yourself from one member to the other, and there may be something that they can um, add and help support you with. The biggest thing that um, we try and do with our patients during treatment is to avoid significant weight loss. When we're talking about dietitians and our role, it's to help make sure that you understand um, what you can do, what you need to do to support your body's um, nutrition goals. And weight loss is a funny thing. We have a lot of different perceptions in our society around weight loss. And um, one thing I always want to bring up is that even if you're overweight, you can still become malnourished. Um, you know, I have patients sometimes tell me, oh, I've got weight to lose. You know, that's not a problem for me. But whenever you're going through treatment and your body's going through something like cancer, um, it starts working a little differently. And what I mean by that is um, it's trying to preserve itself. So it starts using energy from different sources. And sometimes um, what we see is patients who, if they aren't eating enough and they're losing weight, their body is actually utilizing its own stores for energy. And an easy store for your body to kind of use or an easy food source is muscle. 
And um, the problem with that is muscle is so essential. Um, we often just think about our upper body, you know, our biceps, triceps, and our quads, and that being our muscle, when actually muscle is everywhere in our body. Muscle helps us with swallowing. It helps us with talking and chewing. It helps us with getting up out of chairs and sitting down um, safely, as well as taking care of ourselves. So when you have significant weight loss, it does impact that part of our body as well. Not something that we always think about as muscle, but we do start to see it with patients who really struggle. Um, it can also have an impact on your immune function. Um, you can be at higher risk for falls. And more significantly, um, I think sometimes patients just don't quite always see this, but it can delay wound healing. So if you have surgery or if you're having radiation, um, there can be um, tissue repair that's, that's going on. And if you aren't getting enough nutrition, that will not heal, and it can delay other stages of treatment potentially. So it's very important that you, you know, get the nutrition that you need. And briefly, um, it was discussed about a feeding tube that can possibly be part of your plan of care. If you are not able um, or you're struggling to tolerate food by mouth, a tube feeding may be part of your treatment plan. And I don't want people to be afraid of this. Um, I want you to see it as part of your treatment, and it's essential in you being successful. Um, it can really take a lot of pressure off patients by getting the calories and the protein and the fluid that you need, and you're going to feel better once you get those essential components. So look at it as part of nourishing yourself and part of your treatment. Now, there are medications to assist with side effects. Please talk with your healthcare team. Um, the sooner you let them know, the better. You can start feeling better. And so that's really what we're here to do is support you. Hydration, I'm going to briefly just speak about that. When we're not eating well or if you're nauseated, drinking fluid also falls off the list, not just food. And dehydration is so um, concerning. It can not only increase um, other side effects that you might feel, nausea, fatigue, headache, dizziness, can also result in constipation and, um, and, and weakness. But remember that anything that is liquid at room temperature is considered a fluid. So this is water, milk, sports drinks. And in general, most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Treatments such as radiation can cause an increased risk in um, hydration, and that's pretty much because um, it can be drying to your body. And uh, so there may be times where your fluid needs go up. But talking with our healthcare team will help you with um, understanding that. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you and supporting you during this time. Please continue communication with them. Reach out to them. The sooner the better. I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Jordan. That was superb and wonderfully presented and, and really important of nutrition and really working with your healthcare team so that you really get the adequate nutrition and hydration that you need to, to be able to continue on. That's really important, very important for you. I would like to, uh, I'm, uh, I'm Carol Messner. I'm um, an oncology social worker. I'm director of education and training with Cancer Care. But I also want to just today, before we take the questions, so please get ready to ask your questions, um, I want to say a few words about the Cancer Care Hope Line and our website as well. As, 
as additional assets to each of you on this call today. Um, the uh, the hope line is an 800 number. It's 1-800-813-4673. And you'll be getting any resource any of us, any of us mention um, when you get your evaluation from us. It's, it's not just an evaluation. You're also going to get all the, all the different links that we can think of that would help you um, to have more information to take away from the call today. Uh, however, um, the helpline is staffed by oncology social workers, and they basically rotate, and so there's always someone when you call to answer your question or to talk to you. And particularly at this time, um, we have been seeing many more people calling um, about all the cancer issues as well as living in, an, in a world in which um, we have, um, where COVID is existing as well, along with all the other things we have to deal with. And our staff are really wonderful at helping you with those concerns. Um, and so I would very much encourage you to take advantage of that free service to call um, and actually um, and talk to some of our oncology social workers. Um, I know that many of you are troubled, have concerns. Um, some of you are in, in places where you are um, are staying in, at home most of the time, actually, um, and some of you may not be, but to some extent, there is a concern that you all have, and it's good to be able to talk to someone about that. Your healthcare team is also, of course, a very good group to talk to as well, but these staff are, we're getting a lot of calls about this, we have a lot of information, we have both um, the speaking to the social worker, we have informational materials, we have podcasts, we have a lot of information that you can uh, draw upon to help you. In addition to that, um, we also have a website because I know many of you are from all different parts of the country in the U.S. and internationally as well. And so that is one, our website is www.cancercare.org. And that also is a conduit to all the services. So if you need to talk to someone, if you, need, if you have a question, you can post it on the website and the Oncology Social Worker will, will respond back to you online. And just in terms of our services in general, we do offer them both on the telephone and online. And we have a lot of online support groups. So we have online support groups for people with gastric cancer. We have telephone support groups. We have individual counseling available. Um, we have help for kids in which families, kids and teens whose families are affected by or who have um, someone in the family, um, a, a beloved person in the family who is struggling with gastric cancer. So just to be aware that these services are all available to you and they're free. So with that being said, and we of course have these education workshops, lots of them coming up, so you'll be getting lots of information about that as well. So with that being said, we now do have time for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So I'm going to turn this now over to Crystal, who will bring all of our speakers on board, and we are going to actually uh, begin to take our questions from all of you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. And so the question from one of our online participants, um, and um, so I'm uh, I'm going to give Dr. Koo to start with. What factors increase the risk for stomach cancer? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, 
So the, you know, part of the reason why we think it's extremely common in parts of the world, so again, in, in East Asia, um, in parts of Eastern Europe, in parts of um, Central and South America, and pretty uncommon in the U.S. and Western Europe, is that we think one of the main risk factors uh, is a bacterial infection called H. pylori or Helicobacter pylori. So this is actually a bacterial infection that people get probably when they're kids, and they can live in the stomach essentially for, for years and years. And probably there are billions of people around the world uh, with billions with a B who have this infection. So it can increase the risk for ulcers, and it can also increase the risk for, for stomach cancer. So it's an infection that typically is more common um, in places where food is left out at room temperature. So uh, in the U.S., for example, 50 years ago, it actually was quite common, and therefore stomach cancer was more common as well. But now in, in an industrialized nation, uh, food is uh, typically refrigerated from, from beginning to end, so it's actually become much less common. Um, in addition to H. pylori, there probably are also something that's related to, to diet. So, for example, Japan has a very high incidence of stomach cancer. They don't have that high of, uh, they don't have that much H. pylori, actually. Um, so the thought is that it's something to do with maybe smoke to preserve vegetables or lack of fresh vegetables. So it's probably, you know, the, the two most common reasons are probably uh, the H. pylori as well as kind of uh, diet, and the two can kind of feed up each other or influence each other. Um, beyond that, I mean, there are, there are less common conditions. Uh, very uncommonly, this can be associated with uh, genetic syndrome. Um, but, but certainly, H. pylori probably is one of the um, biggest risk factors all around the world. Excellent. Um, and um, we uh, now have a question. Um, from uh, Shaggy, um, if you want to um, uh, take that question. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ku, by the way. Um, we now have a telephone question. Yes. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie S. Your line is open. Oh, hello. Um, I'm sorry, that answered my question, uh, but just a comment. I had a friend of mine that had gastric cancer, and her sign and symptom was backache. I'm sorry, what was that? The My backache. friend's sign of gastric cancer was a backache. Yeah, that's a good question. Okay. Um, well, Dr. Um, Sondal, do you want to address that question? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, 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 the signs or symptoms of, of the gastric cancer and how it presents is, uh, can really vary from, from, from one patient to another. Um, this patient is, sounds like she had backache, and that could be explained by either the cancer itself, um, what we call metastasizing, which means left the original place, which is the the, the, the stomach, and went to the bone. So uh, maybe she has uh, kind of cancer in, in the bone that's causing this pain, or even in some patients, the, the gastric cancer itself and the lymph nodes that surrounding the, cancer, the, the, the stomach uh, sometimes are pushing and causing more back backache or kind of vague symptoms. So uh, the, the, the symptoms really can vary from, from one patient to another and, and can definitely, gastric cancer uh, can definitely go to the bone in, in some patients or even go to what we call the peritoneum, which is the lining uh, surrounding all the, kind of like a sac surrounding all the structures in the belly and uh, and and uh, a lot of times patients feel their what we call early satiety, which means that they feel full soon after eating, um, and even uh, feel bloated, or sometimes they 
they notice that their um, their abdomen or their belly is getting bigger because it's now full of fluid. So um, any of these things can definitely happen as manifestation of how this can present. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Kudi, want to add anything to that? Or? No, no, that was an extreme, that was very comprehensive. Yeah, I would say that in general, I think back pain is, um, is a less common, uh, presentation and, and less important the cancer cells that spread there. Again, it's not uncommon for the diagnosis to be delayed because, you know, the symptoms of stomach cancer can certainly mimic, you know, an ulcer or acid reflux or gastritis. And, you know, certainly I think, like I said, everyone in the world probably has some degree of, you know, stress induced acid reflux at this point in time. Thank you. And we have another question. Uh, this is for Dr. Ku. Um, um, is there any immunotherapy or trials for HER2 negative and PD1 negative? Uh, so is it PD1? Is there any immunotherapy or clinical trials yeah. for HER2 yeah. negative and PD1 negative? Yeah, so I think the question is probably referring to PDL1. I mean, so again, PDL1 is. What we, uh, is the, what we call the biomarker that, that uh, allows us to figure out whether someone is more or less likely to benefit from from immunotherapy. I mean, so the answer is yes, absolutely. I mean, there you know, so HER2 negative cancers are the majority of stomach cancers, so that's that's you know something like 80 percent. Um, so there there are you know all kinds of different studies exploring um, you know exploring other ways to attack the cancer. Um, there are also newer immunotherapy studies that are looking at combinations of uh, two, sometimes even three medications uh, to try to stimulate the immune system. Um, so, so absolutely, I would say that up to this point, you know, there actually have been a lot of studies uh, that have been moving, you know, that have been moving very quickly. Uh, but one thing I, I, I forgot to add, and this question gives me the excellent opportunity to do so. Is that you know many clinical studies actually are on hold because of the COVID situation. So, for example, for us, uh, all but you know kind of the most promising studies with the most evidence are actually on hold, um, and that's really because you know clinical studies frequently involve additional tests, uh, not only blood tests but sometimes biopsies. And those are just not things that we can safely do in the in, in the context of the pandemic, um, and even for our patients who are currently on studies. Um, the FDA and, and the drug companies actually have agreed and, and um, that we can actually waive or omit a lot of the um, extra study requirements. So, you know, again, this is really an unprecedented situation. Um, uh, you know, this will pass eventually and, and studies will be up and running again. But something to consider is that, you know, in the next three to six months, many studies actually may not be available uh, because we're trying to Again, like I said, reduce, you know, procedures, tests, and treatments uh, for patients as much as we safely can. Thank you Thanks so much. Um, Dr. Sambal, do you want to add anything? Or? No, I am, that's really kind of, I mean, Dr. Cook covered it all, and, and I just uh, kind of uh, concur with, with what he mentioned about most of the trials. Also, what we have is really most of them are on hold. Very few are open, and it's really case by case. So my advice for for patients who are living, you know, hours or, or uh, hours away from a tertiary center and they were looking for a second opinion, before you travel or before you drive, contact that center to make sure that the trial is already is is still open or that it it is a possibility. Because again, it's it's 
we we want to minimize travel, minimize any unnecessary visits if it's not needed. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So I mean, certainly one thing that we're trying to do, like I said, is telemedicine. But but kind of related to that is, and I'm always happy, but but certainly even more so now that you know rather than have someone come from a couple of hours away, uh, I'm always happy to speak with their you know local oncologist and and discuss things over the phone. And you know, if there's a reason for them to come, that that's great. But if not, that's even better. And that you know, everyone's you know best you know being close to home at this point in time. Thank you. And um, this is excellent. Thank you. And our um, next um, question is for Dr. Sunball. Um, how often can paracentesis be used? Is it of concern if the abdominal fluid begins to build up again within 10 days of the procedure was completed? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, paracentesis, which means removal, which is removal of, of extra fluids from the abdomen or from the belly. Uh, with a needle. Uh, that can be done in, in patients who have what we call ascites, which is fluids accumulating in the, in the belly from really, this is usually as a reaction from the cancer itself. Um, this can be done as frequently as, as needed in, in patients. So, I mean, there are patients who get it once or, or twice a week in some circumstances. Now, of course, in, in such patients where where uh, what we usually do in general, we, we start with doing paracentesis to, to alleviate that, uh, th those symptoms that patients are having with our pain or fullness and all of that, uh, with the hope that the chemotherapy can uh, kick in soon and, and, and try to, to minimize the cancer so that the fluids are, are decreasing. But in some patients, and in, uh, in few patients, we, we sometimes are not able to, to control the uh, the fluids just by by the by the therapy and by the paracentesis. So sometimes what what we do is we discuss with patients and with palliative care as well to place uh, a, a catheter um, inside uh, the belly so that whenever a patient feels uh, kind of full, they can uh, really uh, fluids can be um, uh, removed uh, at home. With it's like a there is a, a, a caster in there or like a small tube in there inside the belly. It's always there. Uh, it's it's taped and everything. And then patients are taught how to open it up. Like a, it's really like opening a faucet, removing of fluids, and then and then kind of go from there. Again, this is kind of not the majority of patients. This is the minority of patients. Those are the patients who we cannot control. The, the, the extra fluids with just paracentesis and they're getting it very frequently. Okay, excellent. Um, and um, um, another question for Dr. Um, Ku. Um, this question is, so this, uh, Dr. Ku, for you, um, is immunotherapy effective with microsatellite stable Yeah, so I, mean, I think that's really, I think, well, that, I think it's a really good question, and I think it gets to the, to the heart of the matter. So, again, like I said, I think it was fall 2017 uh, that the one drug, pembrolizumab, was approved, um, again, as third-line treatment. In other words, the third treatment choice um, for stomach cancer, and, and it was approved for the 60% of tumors uh, that, are, that have, um, that are positive um, or have this PDL1 protein. So, so the vast, so, so the most of those tumors are what we call microsatellite stable, 
Again, microsatellite unstable tumors are only 3 to 4%. Uh, most, most, if not all of them, are PDL1 positive. And in those patients, there really is outsized benefit from immunotherapy uh, to the extent that we even potentially consider the possibility of curing metastatic disease. Um, unfortunately, that's just not the case for microsatellite stable disease. Um, the benefits are, are relatively modest, and you know, from a statistical and medical perspective, we focus on what we call the tail at the end of the curve. And what that means is that, unfortunately, the majority of patients don't respond uh, to immunotherapy, even if they qualify for it based on the PDL1 testing. But there are a small number of patients uh, who do benefit, and, and, and for the small number of patients who do benefit, um, the side effects are much less than chemotherapy. The benefits are much long, much longer lived than chemotherapy. So, so, so because it's a small group that benefits, and because we don't have a have a great way to predict who they are beyond the PDL1 testing, uh, you know, we still offer it to patients, but but unfortunately, you know, the, the benefits are certainly not um, as robust or as good as we would want. And that really comes back into, you know, the, the, the next generation of studies. Uh, and many of the studies are looking at, like I said, combinations of two or different, two or three different ways to try to stimulate the immune system. There's nothing from the studies that's, that's ready for prime time yet. Uh, but, but certainly, you know, we're, we're all, you know, grateful to our patients and, and to their family members, you know, we'll consent for them to go on these studies. And, and at some point too, you know, the, the studies will be up and running again. Um, but, but they are mostly on hold for now. Thank you. I think we have another question from one of our um, participants. Um, Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Shock AB. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, this question is for Dr. Ku. It was very, very interesting and informative. I was wondering if somebody has direct esophagus, what's the chances of that turning to cancer? If we have what? Okay. Uh, Barrett's esophagus. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, Barrett's esophagus is um, technically a pre-cancer diagnosis. So, so what, I, what that means is that uh, for people who have very bad acid reflux, so the acid from the stomach comes up into the esophagus, which is the food pipe that connects to the stomach, and it can injure the lining of the stomach. Uh, sorry, injure the lining of the esophagus. And when we look at it under the microscope, it's a condition known as Barrett's esophagus. So with time, Barrett's esophagus can become cancerous. But thankfully, uh, the answer is that the risk of it becoming cancerous is actually quite low. Uh, so for the average person with Barrett's esophagus, uh, with 10 years of follow-up, only 2% of, 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 of people will eventually develop cancer. So. So thankfully, it's very, very low. Uh, but nevertheless, it is important. Um, it is important to do one of two things. The first is that um, when when the biopsy is done, that whoever looks at it um, um, is, is is a well-trained pathologist because there are different flavors of Barrett's esophagus. Um, uh, sometimes the Barrett's esophagus doesn't show any um, serious changes, what we call dysplastic changes, and that actually has almost no risk of becoming cancerous. Uh, and it's, it's even unclear how often people need to get a repeat um, endoscopy to check. On the other hand, um, sometimes along with the Barrett's esophagus, we see what's called low-grade or high-grade dysplasia, meaning that the cancer cells are looking more and more abnormal and are beginning to look more and more cancer-like. So, you know, with low-grade or high-grade dysplasia, uh, you either actually have to perform endoscopies very frequently or with high-grade dysplasia, it's, um, you know, there's that, a high concern that that actually may be cancerous, 
so we either consider surgery or increasingly, thankfully, we can consider um, treatments such as using lasers to try and burn off uh, the areas that are very abnormal. Um, but, but certainly the good news is that for the average person with barrett esophagus, the risk of developing a cancer is thankfully very low. Well, this is an amazing um, program, I have to say. I, I actually, I just want to thank all of our speakers. Uh, just, this has been, um, each been wonderful, phenomenal speakers, I have to say. Great team. Um, and I also want to thank all of you as participants, both on the phone and online, who have asked such great questions. And I do recognize that you all have questions that go beyond as part of the scope of a one-hour program. So I do want to actually review with all of you how to get your questions answered because that's the most important thing now. Um, so I know some of you still have questions. And so for those of you with medical questions, we do recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team. Even if you asked a question today, we still recommend you go back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the very best. However, we also do know that you like to look out there and to go to credible sites um, to really get um, information um, that's very important to each of you. And so I, I would recommend, in terms of credible sites, that many of the organizations that we've listed on um, as resources um, for all of you, um, that we collaborate with those organizations, they're all great organizations for you to contact when you have questions that are medically based. Um, the American Cancer Society has a whole database of information. The National Cancer Institute, which you'll get information about, is a wonderful resource as well. Those are credible resources. We don't want you going to sites that are not really carefully monitored, and the information would be 2020 information that you'd be getting, and from really expert people, expert speakers. So I would say that um, many of the organizations we partner with, um, and you'll get a list of them, can help you with my medical questions as well. But also, if you asked a question today or you heard information today, take it back to your healthcare team and talk to them about your, you know, what you've learned. Also, for those of you who want to pursue services from cancer care, either if you're counseling or support groups, um, more of our workshops or publications or financial assistance, please do contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, we don't want anyone who feel that you're alone in coping with gastric cancer, with any type of cancer. We want you to know that you're part now of a large community of support, and we are here truly to help you. So please do call us, and again, I want, or, or visit our website and post your concerns and questions there, or get information that you need there. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.